1: And welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark.
0: And I'm Bethan. Welcome to the show, guys. This week we've got what I would describe as quite a big case. Um, well, a couple of cases. So should we just dive straight in, Mark?
1: Straight in? Yeah, straight do Straight
0: in? It. I don't know what was going on with my voice then. <laughs> shall we dive straight in?
1: <laughs> You've gone Australian. Um, yeah, it is. This is... Um, shall we just explain? So this is a two-part episode. Both parts will be out today on the day that you're listening to this um but yeah it's um it's massive so we needed to split it into two parts but yeah let's just dive straight into it now
0: <laughs> i can't believe i mean if i ever want to try and do an australian accent that's my get in there, there you phrase. Go, you've nailed it yeah i think it is fair to assume that we've all traveled by train at least once in our lives and some of us more than others and it always feels incredibly safe as a mode of transport to me i don't know about you mark
1: Yeah I I would say so however I don't know the exact cases that you're going to be covering today but I remember a couple as I was growing up that were major train disasters in this country and they were really shocking and lots of fatalities so I'm always conscious of that I think if I get on a train for you know high-speed train for quite a, a long distance I'm always conscious at the back of my mind that these accidents do happen and One time recently when I was on the train to London, I got up and walked down the aisle and I could barely walk. The train was going that fast. It was going at like 140 miles an hour. I I just couldn't I nearly lost my balance because I don't know it's sort of hard to explain but it's just going that fast that I could really feel it I couldn't feel it Mm. when I was sat down but I could when I got up so I'm always conscious that they do just pelt through the country and actually there have been these terrible accidents before so yeah I'm probably not I probably don't think it's as safe as as most people do.
0: I always feel like I've kind of got this romanticised idea in my head, so I feel like it's kind of reassuring. It's quite big, it's a big sight, you know, it's not this little thing that normally, like you said, you don't normally feel how fast you're going. It kind of smoothly glides along tracks, it's not bumping up and down on different roads. You can, usually, this is the UK, but you can usually trust what time it's going to collect you, what time you're going to arrive at your destination, um... And I I do think it's a bit of a romantic notion around train travel. We took a family trip on an old steam train to see Santa recently. The sounds and smells of the journey were really nostalgic, made me feel quite emotional, feel really festive. But then on the flip side, we sat in this enclosed carriage and I spotted that sign on the wall that says misuse of the emergency pull is enforceable with a fine. And I couldn't help thinking about Debbie Lindsley trapped in a carriage alone with her killer. And I shared on the Facebook page, sometimes it's kind of frustrating to have those intrusive thoughts. And someone else did say that she felt similarly too. So it's interesting that you also have felt those kind of thoughts of remembering other, you know, remembering instances instead.
1: Yeah, it it is a weird one. And I'm thinking about the most recent time I got a train. Uh, It was a local chug-a-chug train and there was a guy snorting cocaine off the back of his phone. I was wow. coming back on a Saturday night, to be fair, Crikey. and just in the open carriage way, and he was he was snorting cocaine off the back of his phone, and I was just like, I just, and this this is like a rural train. I live out in the country, and I just thought, what? I can't believe this. What you know? Is that what we've descended to? So, I don't know. I'm I'm always the person that sits on a train, and and someone random comes and sits next to me and starts talking to me, and I I really don't want that to happen. So. I have a different experience and a different view. <laughs> I don't romanticize them. I see people taking coke and have those lots of those intrusive thoughts that you've mentioned.
0: Ah, uh, well, I usually just watch out the window, have in my coffee, read a book. I I don't really think too much about you know being on a train and however, after researching this week's episodes and after recording it and sharing this with everybody, I feel like some of those intrusive worries are going to appear next time I travel by rail because, yeah, there's there's a lot that can happen. Um, I'm still kind of a little bit shocked by the brazenness of just snorting coke off your phone case in a carriage. This week we have two episodes for you and I have really gone down a rabbit hole of train driving and trains. What I will say, though, is I am no expert. I've learned what I've learned over writing these episodes but i am not an expert so if any of our listeners know more about this than me and spot anything i get wrong i do apologize i would like to put that out there first of all on friday the 19th of september 1997 a number of passengers got on a train for a journey that was made frequently a journey that many of them would have made before but on this day tragedy struck so for a bit of background into this specific train journey The HST, or High Speed Train Service, we will be discussing is the Swansea to London Paddington one. It departs London Paddington, heads to Swansea Station, and then returns to London Paddington. And obviously there's stops all the way along. At the time of this week's case, the train departed Swansea at 10.32 in the morning, and the line it was on is the Great Western Trains, which our UK listeners may recall used to be called First Great Western Trains. I didn't know they changed their name, so there we go. And then some background to kind of help set the scene. So the driver from Paddington to Swansea was a guy called James Tunnock. And then after the short leg of the trip from Swansea to Cardiff, he then handed over the controls to a a driver called Larry Harrison, who was to complete the journey back to London. The train is made up of eight passenger cars, sandwiched between a locomotive at either end. And because this was the return trip, the front formation of carriages was the coach marked, marked H. So on the way out, A would have been at the front. And then the phrase HST means a specific type of train that can go at high speeds. And sorry if that's really obvious, but this specific locomotive or the specific locomotives on this train were class 43s and they had a listed top speed of 125 miles per hour. So that's why their official title was IC125. It references that top speed. So um, like you said, these trains can go at ridiculous speeds. So earlier in the day, the first driver, James Turnock, found out that there were a couple of faults on the train. When he took command at Paddington, he discovered that the buzzer used to communicate with the conductor was working unreliably, and the buzzer was sounding non-stop in the London end of the locomotive and was not working at all on the Swansea end. And he also found a fault with the automatic warning system, sometimes known as AWS, that prevented the brakes from releasing. The AWS was a system that notified drivers of upcoming signals and their settings. It would not release the train if there was a stop signal. So it's really, really helpful, Um, doesn't release the train if they're on a a red stop. But this was broken and so it wasn't releasing the train even though there were no signals advising they couldn't go. A fault with the AWS in the London End power car had been reported the previous day but testing overnight done at the maintenance depot didn't show any faults. So the train was passed for service. And it was working on the front end of the train from London. So not on the Swansea end but the the London end... Um, Driver Tunnock had an indication at every signal that he passed between Paddington and Swansea. But of course the train was going to be reversed for the return, so going from Cardiff to Swansea, Driver Tunnock isolated or disabled the AWS. Now this was allowed, trains were not required to have this switched on by law. However, AWS was a safety precaution, and Driver Tunnock didn't report the failure to the signaller or to rail track as was required, which would have allowed them to provide extra signalling cautions. Notifying the signal box could have meant they'd arrange further protective measures for a train running with AWS off. So leaving more space between the first yellow and then the red signal because you have yellow and then double yellow and then red to tell the train to slow and stop. So James Tunnock stated that he had notified both the the operational supervisor at London Paddington of the faulty buzzer and the AWS system, as well as calling GWT or Great Western Trains Control at Swindon and explaining that he was going to be running the westbound service with the AWS isolated and he expected repairs to be carried out at Swansea before the locomotive with the faulty system would become the leading unit for the return trip. Since the fault repair notebook on the train was full, Turner attached a handwritten note to the control desk, which informed Larry Harrison of the fault. And another train member, a staff member of the train, said that they'd mentioned this note to Harrison. He hadn't seemed bothered about it. He wasn't worried about it. And workers did manage to fix that buzzer at Swansea. When they'd arrived at Swansea, Turner had found no workers waiting, so he headed out onto the platform to call GWT Control again. And we will discuss that call in a bit more detail later. And then after Cardiff, Larry Harrison took the controls, off they went. He correctly adhered to several 100 mile an hour restrictions around Reading and then sped up to the scheduled 125 miles per hour. It has to be noted that Harrison had not previously driven an HST without AWS operating. So no Great Western Trains driver had received any training or instruction about how to drive an HST without AWS. In 1997, it was debated as to whether AWS was merely an aid to driving, which should depend on the skill of the driver himself, or whether it should be regarded as an essential safety device. It wasn't the law, and Tunnock and Harrison were able to drive without AWS. After leaving Reading, the train encountered a number of emergency speed restrictions of 100 miles an hour, which had been temporarily imposed on account of the condition of the track, and these speed limits were adhered to. And after admi- emerging from the last ESR, so the Emergency Speed Restriction West of Slough, Harrison powered the train up to its designated speed of 125 miles an hour, like I said before. So at this point, he's really going at basically as fast as possible. At this point the train was approaching Southall which is a station within a town which is a suburb of London and the town lies on the Great Western main line, a main line running from Bristol to Paddington and the line is mostly used for passenger trains. The main operator on this line at the time was Great Western Railway, at the time called First Great Western. They ran all sorts of lines from intercity trains to regional commuter services and occasional freight services used the line as well. These were provided by various companies and the common destinations for the freight services is the Shunting Yard, situated on the southern side of the tracks. Approaching Southall from the west, as the train we're discussing today was, sees trains pass four signals, so they are numbered SN298, SN280, SN270 and SN254. These four are situated over the space of approximately two miles and the final signal is located just ahead of Southall Station. On the 19th of September, just after 1 o'clock that afternoon, the train passed the first of the four, which was showing green, meaning full speed ahead. The next was a double yellow, and then the next was a yellow single light. These should have warned Harrison that the next would be red, which of course means stop. But Larry Harrison didn't see the first two signals. He only knew that there was a stop warning when he saw the red. And by this point, it was far too late to try and stop the train, which was travelling at high speed. The reason for the signals requiring the HST service to stop were due to a freight train up ahead. Crossing the line about a mile along the track was Alan Bricker, who was driving, and the train itself was a locomotive pulling 20 carriages known as hoppers, designed to haul rocks and quarry products. Alan's train was travelling at 21 miles an hour, and as he crossed the line, he was shocked to see the HST coming him at speed. This train had definitely not stopped as it should have done. Larry Harrison should have decelerated at that second signal and that then, you know, slow again at the second, at the third, he would have been able to come to a safe stop in time for the final signal. But he didn't. He didn't react to the second or the third signal and it was only when he saw the red stop, which was at almost the same moment as the freight train came into view up ahead, that he did. Larry Harrison would later recall spotting the freight train's locomotive at a funny angle before realising it looked like that because it was crossing his path. He triggered an emergency stop, and Alan at the same time tried to accelerate, but a collision was inevitable. The freight train managed to gain about 4 miles an hour, it would not have got out of the way in time, and the HST had reduced its speed, but only to about 80 miles an hour. Witnesses on board recalled how there was a massive bang as the emergency brakes went on, and then a violent jolting from side to side. The crash occurred at 1.15pm with the HST 410 metres past that red signal that it should have stopped at. The leading locomotive of the HST scraped along the seventh of the 20 freight cars. It then split the freight train. The HST locomotive's right wall was shaved off of the body and the train was derailed. The rear section of the freight train stopped almost immediately due to severed brake lines, and two seconds into the collision, Coach H collided with one of the freight cars and four seconds into the incident, with the HST still travelling at 60 miles an hour, it was thrown onto its side, separating from the rest of the track and sliding to a stop next to the tracks. Two people died in this carriage, Coach H, thrown from the train through the broken windows and ending up beneath the cars that then followed. Coach G suffered the worst fate. So the right-hand side of this car was ripped off as it struck several freight cars and eight seconds into the accident, Coach G hit the now stationary rear of the freight train. The freight wagons were driven back and jackknifed. Coach G and the struck hopper wagon lifted into the air. The hopper wagon, so so those hoppers that we talked about, those carriages, that then jammed up against the nearby overhead lines The stanchions, the supports and then the back end of Coach G lifted, the front went under a freight train car, Coach G was flattened and then it was hit from behind by the Coach F of the HST and it bent Coach G into a U shape. Four people in this carriage died as the body of the train folded inward on itself and a fifth later died at hospital. Further back a witness recalled we went up in the air and there was a colossal impact as we came back down again. I could see the freight trucks right against the window of our carriage almost on top of us. The rear of the HST led by coach F collided with the stationary rear of the freight train and coach F derailed. Coaches A and B came to a stop at the beginning of the wreckage less than 15 seconds after the initial impact. Those coaches suffered minor damage and they didn't derail. As the dust settled after the crash, the passengers on the train were advised to begin walking to the back of the train. Six people were immediately dead. One person was dying and 139 people were injured. And I'm just going to pause here, Mark. I've put some photos in for you to see. Just the absolute carnage.
1: Oh, it's just... Yeah, I mean, we'll obviously put those on social media so that our listeners can see them. But it's just catastrophic, isn't it? The way you've described it in so much detail, you can just it's hard to sort of keep up really with with exactly what happened but you can picture the scene of devastation and carriages jackknifing and going up in the air and then hitting the overhead cables which is a, another huge concern and i'm just amazed that it's just like it's just a whole mess of metal across this these train tracks and i'm just amazed that at this point in time only six people are dead uh, you know, straight away. And I'm sure there'll be further fatalities. But yeah, it's like nothing you can imagine, isn't it?
0: It's, yeah, you see those pictures and you can almost hear the metal and you can almost smell everything. And it's, yeah, really, really shocking. And there's a lot happens in just those short 15 seconds, but it, it wouldn't have been shorter. that, you know, for the people in it, it must have felt like a lifetime
1: It reminds me a little bit of when a plane is about to crash and it's descending and, you know, people on board know that that the end is coming and and this is it. And they've got seconds and seconds of realising that and trying to come to terms with it. And for the drivers of both of these trains, they've seen each other and they know it's too late and that there's going to be a catastrophic impact just moments away. And I just can't imagine how that must feel. You know, they're kind of one of the drivers saying he couldn't quite get his head around the angle that the freight train was at. And I get it because he'd never in his life have seen it like that. And it's because it, it was where it shouldn't be or he was where he shouldn't have been. So, yeah, it's, his brain is trying to process what he's seeing because it can't be. He can't be seeing what he's seeing because that means that a a collision is inevitable. So it's just, yeah, it's shocking. Mm -hmm. And the way you've described it, it just paints such a vivid picture.
0: And the accident quickly came to the attention of rail track staff in the new Integrated Electronic Control Centre at Slough. So the signaller, Mr Ford, was using the automatic route setting equipment to process hundreds of trains passing daily along the lines controlled from Slough. He observed the movement of some 12 trains within the area immediately under his control. So this guy's kind of watching everything that happens with his new electronic control centre. Signal Ford could see the movement of the trains and estimate roughly their speed by the rate at which each train was recorded as occupying the track circuits shown on the visual display unit within the signal box. And Signal Ford saw that the train had not, as it should have done, slowed at signal 280, nor, more alarmingly, at Signal SN270. Signal SN254 was set at red, and Signal Ford quickly became aware that the track circuits beyond had been occupied. A collision was inevitable. Within seconds, the VDU registered other track circuits on both the down relief line and the down main as occupied. This is because they'd been short-circuited by metal objects across the lines, cables being cut, etc. So this was indicative of a crash and he reacted immediately as he was trained to do. He could have pressed an emergency button, which would, within about 15 seconds, return all signals to red to prevent the possibility of further collisions, but he decided instead that the job could be done much more quickly, so he set individual signals to red, which also gave some control over where the trains were stopped. And so this is what he did, and he brought all the trains in the vicinity of Southall to a halt. Rushing from a nearby yard, five railway workers arrived to the most awful site. It was absolute, utter carnage. Aside from the rear car and locomotive, very little of that HST was intact. The area was covered in debris. The responders started climbing into and over the wreckage, trying their hardest to free surviving passengers. And others did their best to keep survivors, who were of course suffering from shock and potentially physical injuries as well, from wandering off. Linda and Hayden were on the train, both at the time in their 60s. Linda later described the aftermath of the crash as follows. Then there was complete silence. The next thing was a very weak announcement from a guard asking us to make our way to the back of the train. There was self imposed discipline. No pushing, no shoving and no panic. The door of the train, which was at a tilt, was up in the air so we were helped down by people outside. All around us there were pools of oil on fire and overhead electricity lines had come down and they were dangling in the water and oil. After we got down we were on our way, picking our way through the smoke, and as we came past the first class carriages we saw bodies and injured people just lying there. I'll never get the image out of my mind. Many on the train remembered the crash being followed by eerie silence, and then broken only by the sounds of the injured and the shocked reactions of people around them. In Coaches F and those then going to the back of the train, which all remained substantially upright, a number of individuals made it their job to encourage a calm and orderly response so that the injured could be given assistance. In Coach F, Great Western Train staff, including the then Managing Director of GWT, are located in the buffet area. So some of whom were themselves injured, but they quickly organised help for passengers. So the staff really got together. And I don't think that the Managing Director was supposed to be on the train as staff. He just happened to be travelling on that train that day. Passengers remembered also the service that was given by Abdul Kankori. So he was the conductor on the train. He made calming announcements, subsequently organised and assisted in the disembarkment of many passengers from the rear coach. And the first thing that many passengers noticed outside the train was Mr Kangori So he had alighted and taken it on himself to warn passengers of the danger posed by the overhead electric wires that had been brought down by the crash. So the conductor really just stepped up and continued his duties right away as well. He kind of worked really well under pressure. Locals appeared from nearby to assist as well, warning passengers of the danger of the fallen wires, and many people remembered the care and kindness of the inhabitants of Southall, who came back to the scene to provide the injured and rescued with much-needed comfort. Blankets, tea and drinks were provided, together with help for those who suddenly found themselves in a really appalling situation. Larry Harrison miraculously survived with just minor injuries. He had retreated to the engine compartment on the left-hand side after triggering the emergency stop. So he went back through the bulkhead door into a narrow narrow passage to the left of the engine, so left of the engine when you're facing the direction of travel, and he remained there during the collision. Fortunately for him, the substantial damage to the power car occurred on the right-hand side as facing the direction of travel, and the vehicle did remain upright. So although he was shaken and he'd suffered cuts and bruises, he was reasonably unharmed. He rushed out and made the emergency call to the local signalman moments after the accident. So he kind of climbed out and found the first trackside phone he could.
1: Can you imagine how he would have been feeling at that time, knowing mm. this is this has really just happened and knowing that it's crashed, but his car is upright still. So he doesn't really probably know the extent of the the crash until he gets out and then makes that call from the nearest call box like the kind of emergency ones that are along Mm -hmm. the line and then probably looks back at the devastation and just thinks fucking hell this really has just happened yeah i just can't i just cannot imagine it i
0: know and we're gonna hear so much more about larry harrison and from larry harrison and yeah you just it's almost impossible to put yourself in his shoes Many people contacted the rescue services within minutes of the crash. And of course, they had also been contacted by Slough. They were aware of the need for a major emergency response. The respondents often heard or saw people trapped under heavier bits of wreckage that they were unable to move. So sometimes they would be sat just speaking to that person while waiting for cranes to be able to come. And there were approximately 214 people on that train. A number travelling towards the rear were unscathed. They left the scene of the accident as soon as arrangements were made for evacuation. One passenger recalled climbing out of a shattered window in what was now the roof of the coach as it lay on its side. She managed to slither to the ground, helped by the first rescuers on the scene. And another found that it was possible to exit through a shattered window in what had become the floor, where there was a gap between the lower part of the carriageway and the ballast beneath, and he helped two other passengers escape there. Many passengers expressed concern that the fires they could see burning might lead to further disaster, but fortunately those fires didn't spread, they were extinguished relatively quickly when the fire brigade arrived. One survivor of the crash had a fractured collarbone and broken ribs, and whilst her physical wounds healed, she later described how the mental trauma never really goes away. She had been out with her husband and his parents and they were really lucky to walk away from that wreckage. Sixteen survivors were freed from underneath the wreckage once Crane started picking the pile apart. The seven men killed in the horrific crash were Peter Dobson Allen, Clive Brain, David Waring Eustace, Peter Patrick Kavanaugh, Marcus Orlando, Anthony Richard Petch, and Gerard Martin Trainer. Twenty nine year old Peter Kavanaugh had called his mum whilst he was on the train, and their call had ended because he went into a tunnel. His last words to her were, love you, see you later, and she was told of his death early the next day on the Saturday morning. Gerard Traynor was a 38-year-old leisure and tourist officer. He lived with his wife and their four children. Clive Brain was the principal of Swindon College and was on his way to a meeting of the Association of Colleges, and the 57-year-old had been awarded an OBE in 1992. His wife said that she and her two daughters and son realised that he had been travelling on the train when they heard the news reports and they did keep phoning the helpline but couldn't get through and they were finally notified at 1am. Marcus Orlando was a Swedish journalist who had a wife and three children. David Eustace was a lieutenant colonel in the Territorial Army at Shrivenham in Oxfordshire and he was 53, married with children. Anthony Petch was a director of an agricultural products company, and the 52 year old had a wife and two sons. And 65 year old Peter Allen had left his home in Porthcall to visit relatives in the north of England, and he was cut from the train wreckage and airlifted to Charing Cross Hospital, but he died from his injuries a week later. Police, of course, soon rushed to the scene as well, and after making his call, Larry Harrison remained on the scene and was arrested. And I thought it was important to take a moment to discuss Larry Harrison. Reports have described him as a sufficiently licensed and educated driver and it wouldn't have been characteristic of him to ignore signals willfully. He had only two incidents on his record and they were from the 1970s for passing red signals at low speed without severe consequence. He had reacted quickly to the crash, he'd got straight onto the phone, he'd reported the incident, he gave precise information and worked to ensure that all trains were stopped and that the overhead wires were shut down. Since 1994, GWT had operated an at-risk driver competence system whereby drivers were listed as category A, high risk, B or C, which is the lowest risk, and it was a points system. So it took into account a number of things. For example, excess speed, that would give the driver eight points. So category C was a driver who had just three to eight points overall, and drivers were entitled to be recategorized following a successful reassessment. So, Harrison first qualified as a driver in 1975. He passed competent to drive HSTs in 1981. And he remained competent apart from a temporary reassessment in 1994. And that took into account much earlier blemishes on his record. So, there's something in train driving called SPAD, which is signal passed at danger SPAD. And that's where the train proceeds beyond its authorised movement to an unauthorised movement. Harrison had two blemishes on his record that went back to the 1970s, each relating to spads, although those both involved relatively low speed travel. He was, however, passed as competent in July 1995 and recategorised as C, low risk, in December 1995 and after that he remained in category C. At the time of the crash, he was 50 years of age. He had been medically examined on the 9th of September 1996 and didn't require further examination until the age of 55. He was previously complimented for exemplary behaviour during a derailment in November 1995 when, travelling as a passenger, he took over from an injured train driver. So what on earth had caused him to ignore such important signals? Of course, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the AWS was not on. Of course, as I said as well, this is not illegal, but it would have probably ensured that the collision didn't actually happen. So functioning AWS would have given the HST driver an audible warning that he was running towards a signal at danger and he needed to start braking. And failure to press the AWS cancelling button to acknowledge the warning would have caused the emergency brake to apply. Also, had the previous driver reported this to rail track and the signaller, additional yellow warnings to slow down might have been provided. Perhaps the timings for the freight train's crossing might have been altered. But they weren't. And Larry Harrison somehow missed two signals before finally seeing the red signal at the point where it was too late. A possible reason for his fatal error came to light when the investigation acquired a transcript of the call that Harrison made at the scene. So it went as followed. The signal box says, right, and you're at a stand and you're ringing from SN251. Driver, are you okay?" Harrison replied, I'm okay. Yeah, I was just putting my stuff away in the bag. The A, the A, the, the AWS has been isolated because some, some brake problem, I believe. So I had no AWS. So I put my stuff away in the bag. And the next thing I knew, I was coming up against red, up, such coming through, through. And the signal box says through southerl station he replies through southerl yes i was just putting my stuff away in the bag like i would normally do you see and the signal box says right and then harrison replies and all of a sudden i was whizzing through haze with a red at southerl so harrison mentioned twice that he put stuff in his bag this is likely to be paperwork to do with the journey during the call and it really feels like he just wasn't paying proper attention. He was probably on a journey done a number of times before. He was allowing his mind to wander. We talked about this recently, didn't we, about um, the lady who fell asleep in the car. But sometimes your mind wanders. Sometimes you get somewhere and you think, God, I don't really remember. I did that journey on autopilot. And that's bad enough. But it's horrific if you're at the controls of a high-speed train.
1: Yeah, which is normal for, for this person because it's their job and they do it every day. But, and and you can get an element of complacency because you forget that actually you're in charge of hundreds of passengers and this is hundreds of tons of metal careering through the English countryside at 125 miles an hour. And if, if you make one mistake, then it's going to have the impact that it's had. But yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, I, I, you'll get onto it. I know you will, but it sounds like you're so used to having the AWS as that fail safe that... You can almost be a bit complacent and take your mind off the job in hand to do something else and to focus on that because, uh, kind of, um, the machine's going to sort it all for you if anything bad's going to happen.
0: Yeah, it's what it is. One of those things, isn't it? Where it becomes the norm, but it it shouldn't. But you can understand how it becomes the norm. This guy's been doing this for decades.
1: Yeah, there's an over reliance on the AWS and. Probably just you could be guilty of just forgetting that actually it's not employed on this occasion because on, you know, 99.9% of other journeys, it's always there. So you're going to just forget that actually it's not working right now. So I need to be extra cautious and pay extra attention.
0: The recording of that emergency call was later played as evidence at the investigation. And you can hear Harrison sobbing uncontrollably down the phone line as he reported the accident. This wasn't... um. I kind of wanted to make it clear this wasn't like we saw with that plane that you did the episode about with the um pilot who chose to to fly the plane into the side of a mountain. This this isn't he didn't choose to do this. This was he was absolutely distraught. And Harrison then became anxious to get his bag back. The police officer allowed him to climb into the severely damaged locomotive to retrieve his belongings, and the officer recalled how he headed to the torn-up right-hand side and retrieved his bag by reaching in near the control desk. The fact that he knew where to reach for the bag, which of course could have flown anywhere, led to a rumour that he might have used his bag to press the pedal down instead of having his foot on the pedal, allowing him more freedom to move about whilst in control of the train. So perhaps if the bag was under the desk and it was on the pedal... He had been crouching down under the desk too in order to put things into it, not looking out of the train. And the later investigation concluded that Harrison must have been inattentive for the seven seconds during which signal SN280 would have been in view a further period of about 10 seconds during which SN270 would have been in view. So the question was posed, were there two periods of inattention separated by more than about eight seconds between the two signals? Or was there one continuous period in which driver Harrison was inattentive for at least 25 seconds or possibly more? And we don't know, Harrison wasn't able to confirm either way.
1: But that is, that's just so incredibly worrying if there's inattentiveness for up to 25 seconds if you think how fast this train's traveling that's going to have covered more than a mile during those 25 seconds where essentially it's the same as nobody being in control of that train Mm -hmm. not you know it'd be like driving down a motorway with your eyes closed for an entire mile
0: yeah and obviously with a train it's on the track it it's going to follow the line of that track so there's not you would be forgiven for thinking if you've set it on the track and you're just going along that you don't need to keep watching because you don't need to swerve out of the way of stuff like in a car but of course you do need to be watching
1: well the signals there's signals for a reason aren't there of red and yellow so you're going to need to stop at times there's level crossings there's all sorts of things that you would come across where you've got to take action to prevent something terrible happening
0: and witnesses later confirmed that they had seen Harrison earlier in the day riding with his feet up on the desk, both as he pulled into Bristol Parkway station and as he pulled into Swindon station. Harrison originally rejected the possibility, but he later admitted that he couldn't remember for sure. He might have had one or both feet up during parts of the journey. Obviously, this doesn't mean he definitely did that. So, rolling into a station at walking pace, this type of train didn't need a foot on the pedal. So, doing this at stations, Didn't mean he also did that as speed, but I do think it's an element that needs to be mentioned. And as I've said before, I don't know how to drive a train. I am no expert, but I have learned a lot about train driving over recording this research in this episodes. And something that makes me believe that this wasn't true that he'd, you know, left his bag pushed down on the pedal is that both the locomotives of this train had the driver's safety device, a DSD, which was required um, for the foot pedal to be kept depressed and operated as a dead man's pedal. So the pedal was fitted with this dvd as well which is a driver vigilance device so what this basically means is that you have to have your foot on the pedal to keep going you can't just lift your foot off the pedal and the train continues it will you know have to have your foot down but the dvd basically it kind of gives a warbling sound every minute or so that has to be cancelled by the driver releasing and depressing the pedal within three seconds and if they didn't do that there would be a break application. So again, we're seeing some other fail-safes for human error. Um, So we don't have the AWS, but we do have the fact that you have to have your foot on the pedal and every minute you have to release and depress the pedal just to show that you're in control. But the investigation did state in this case that the DVD was subsequently found to have a period of 55 seconds. Driver Harrison must have been alert to react to the device The period between the warnings is, however, not inconsistent with the longer period of inattention considered previously when we talked about how long he wasn't paying attention for, for those yellow signals. So had he maybe zoned out between the successive warnings from the DVD, he's done the DVD depression thing, he's then crouched down and looked at his bag. He knows he's got a bit of time and that's the time as well. What a coincidence, but that's the time that he doesn't see those signals. And Harrison's bag was the subject of a lot of debate as well, obviously. So he had a large holdall in which he carried the usual train driver stuff. That's my technical term for it. So there was things like a lamp, a high-vis vest for use if you're going on the track, various keys, security devices for operating the train controls and the carriage doors, etc, etc. His bag was also found to contain two cans of fizzy drink and a railway-issue metal vacuum flask along with a jar of tea bags. So, those investigating the incident considered that the possibility existed that he deliberately weighted his bag in order to be able to use it to hold down that DSD pedal, which has to be kept pushed down. And then they proposed that he might have used his bag to depress the pedal, leaving him about 55 seconds of time between the pulses of the DVD. So, during that time, he could stand up, he could stretch. And basically, they called it other activities inconsistent with keeping a proper lookout. So, that's quite a valid sort of suggestion but I'm going to go back to the flip side the bag as recovered from driver Harrison by the police was not in fact heavy enough to depress the pedal or not to hold it down it was confirmed that the bag could have been used at least to hold the pedal down after being depressed manually if it contained some additional weight so had it contained something else he'd gotten rid of when he retrieved it I don't think that this could be the case because I'm his reaction's just seem someone who's in a state and a bit of a panic and nothing else was found when they searched the wreckage. So I don't, I don't believe that.
1: Why was he so desperate to get to his bag though?
0: But you don't know how people are going to react in um, weird situations. My gut feeling with this is just, that's an important part of being a train driver. You know, it's his train driver bag. He just wants it. Like it's his comfort. It's maybe the one thing that he feels is normal. Um, You know when they say, like, don't stop to get your belongings when there's a fire, but people often are caught in things because they go back for the silliest of items and they're not thinking straight. I don't feel like he was using the bag to press down. Um, I don't think that that was the case. I feel like he just wasn't paying proper attention, maybe was rummaging in his bag, keeping his foot up and down Mm. and not looking forward.
1: And it's stupid things, like he might have just been thinking, my house keys, even though this horrible event that's yes, just happened. Exactly. He still might have been thinking, my house keys are in there and I need them. And you can't really control what you think about in these instances. So it could have been something as simple as that.
0: Exactly right. And the investigation examined the signalling system. They found that this was working fine. The brakes on both trains also worked fine. Um, we discussed earlier how James Turner could have attempted to call through about the AWS and the faults. So, the investigation found that his call from Swansea was taken by someone who was new. She had just three weeks' experience. And when she spoke to the investigators, she admitted that she wasn't yet familiar with the railway jargon and acronyms, but claimed that she made a note that a driver at Swansea had called about, In this is her quote, "'isolating something.'" She then recalled passing the information to either the service controller or the head of the fleet maintenance, but neither man remembered getting this information. And soon enough, the train was leaving Cardiff with Larry Harrison with the buzzer fixed, but the AWS still disabled. Now, I know that she only had three weeks' experience. I know she's new, but why is someone taking messages who doesn't know railway jargon and acronyms? Surely she should be writing down everything if you're that new? That just absolutely blew my mind.
1: I I do agree. However, I... I don't know, I just think she has passed that information to two different people, or she's saying that she has. So if you do take her at her word, then she is kind of saying, well, I don't really understand The message I've just taken, but I know that it could be important. So I'll pass it to the relevant person. She's done that and then they've done nothing with it potentially, or she hasn't passed it to them and that's why they don't remember getting it.
0: And you know what? I was being quite scathing of her, but then as you were talking and you kind of made me think, I guess her answer of isolating something isn't the specific of what she passed on as her message. She doesn't remember what she passed on the message about isolating. So yeah, I know what you mean actually. Maybe I should be a little bit less harsh on her.
1: I just I I only say that because I just think this was ninety seven, wasn't it? So mm-hmm. what's that, twenty seven years ago? I, I don't know, I just I don't know. That's like a fifty something year old woman that's out there living her life that probably thinks about this every single day and beats herself up yeah. over it and has probably had a, you know, difficult life because of it and she just potentially made a mistake or mm-hmm. was the victim of a rubbish training programme. And actually that's we will go
0: on to that. That is more likely the case and when I was saying about like why was this person taking important calls I kind of meant that from the management point of view like why was somebody who had three weeks experience and didn't know any acronyms or railway jargon taking those phone calls not like specifically that person but yeah I just I've I've kind of yeah I'm going to get it now a little bit more though that isolating something was just her trying to recall she remembered passing on a message about isolating something but at that point she probably did tried to pass on this correct message and yeah. several people along the chain of command could have had that unit pulled from service they could have ordered a shunting crew to swap the locomotives around so that the one that worked from london was the yeah. one at the front again none of those yeah, people I, I did can't,
1: i can't think how that would be physically possible but obviously there is a way to do that and you're absolutely right they could have reversed the the carriages so that Yeah, carriage A was now at the front heading uh, east towards London.
0: Or even, I guess you could just not, as long as you swapped the locomotives, which are smaller, so you might be able to get them onto like a turning circle thing. I am basing this purely off my remembering of Thomas the Tank Engine and that circle they had, but I know they're real. (laughs) Um, So there's, there's a lot of opportunities all the way along this where somebody could have stopped something. And the fault of the accident lay firmly on Larry Harrison. He soon found himself charged with manslaughter. And during his testimony to the investigation, Harrison was simply unable to account for his actions. Whilst giving evidence he was visibly shaking, the only recollections he could now call to mind were whizzing through haze after passing signal SN298 at Green. He recalled some action involving his bag, including putting away paperwork some of that was subsequently found in the bag and re- returned to driver harrison so that proved kind of corroboration of his rec- his recollection on that but he estimated that putting that material into the bag would only have occupied about five seconds or so and his next recollection aside from putting material into his bag was seeing signal sn254 ahead of him at danger red and at this point the train was still rounding a left-hand bend As the track straightened ahead of him, driver Harrison saw that locomotive at a funny angle, realised it was crossing the main line, and he realised there was going to be a collision. Driver Harrison apologised to all the victims of the horrific accident, but he said that he held the train company, Great Western, ultimately responsible because he was ordered to drive despite problems with a safety system. Driver Harrison said he set off from Cardiff Station with a fault to the AWS, but he said that despite the fault, drivers were allowed to continue their journeys and rely on their own sight to avoid potential dangers. He said, I felt obliged to drive the train with the AWS isolated. I didn't want to get myself or my company in trouble. And asked who should take the rest of the responsibility for the accident, Harrison said, the train company which permitted the train to run with the AWS isolated. The inquiry was told that a criminal case against Mr Harrison was dropped after his legal team provided the prosecution with a psychiatric report and Mr Harrison told the inquiry that he would never drive a train again and had retired as a driver. I wish to express my deepest sympathy to the bereaved families and also the passengers who were injured. I want to say I'm very, very, very sorry for what happened on that day. Harrison was charged with manslaughter in April 1998. The charges were eventually dropped Harrison was never legally held responsible. And something I think is really key to mention is people have said how they felt Harrison was a broken man after Subtle. He gave interviews. He never tried to claim that it wasn't his fault. He always admitted what had happened.
1: I, um yeah, I mean, I I feel so sorry for him and I'm devastated for him because he would feel responsible. But you do have to kind of look at it. It wasn't a legal requirement to drive with the AWS in place so that was fine that that was okay to do that and then if you're saying that that's not in place and it's down to the driver of the train to be responsible for monitoring signals and stuff they are i I know as awful as it sounds people do make mistakes and normally in most companies it doesn't have terrible consequences like this but people do make mistakes and there is such a thing as human error and i suppose without any evidence to the contrary so i know that we're talking potentially there were these you know many seconds where we're not really sure what was going on but there's no evidence that he was doing anything he shouldn't have been doing really and I just I think it's a fair outcome, as awful as that would be for the families of those that were injured and killed on that train it's it does seem like just a terrible accident.
0: yeah, I agree with you, and there's a lot of things like with the whole situation with the bag, I really tried to look at it as objectively as possible and take things from every side that yes, maybe he was doing this, maybe him having his feet up showed that he was a careless driver a lot of people said well that shows he doesn't actually take control of his train properly but then I kind of thought to myself they didn't have to have their pedal their foot on the pedal to to cruise in and he was relaxed as in he was relaxed in control maybe I don't know maybe one way of interpreting a scenario is completely the opposite for someone else so yeah and for him to have had an unblemished record pretty much unblemished record especially for the most recent years and to have been doing this for such a long time, I think it is complacency. Sad, sad and horrendous outcome, but complacency.
1: Which we, we can all be guilty of.
0: Yeah. So the inquiry proceedings began in December 1997 with a formal opening in February 1998. Video footage shot immediately after the collision, recorded by a man who was restoring steam engines nearby, was shown. And in the video, the court could see the carriages of the derailed passenger train, squashed into each other along the track, as you saw in the photos up at the top mark. Overturned yellow freight cars from the goods train were strewn alongside the wreckage, and a hole was shown in the one side of the passenger carriage, and smoke and flames were billowing from the driver's power car. It was really incredibly moving for everyone in the court to see this. So the report concluded... Um, And they published that report in February 2000. It contained 93 recommendations to improve operational safety. And I have just realized I said to Mark that I got my ATPs and my AWSs um, completely mixed up earlier in the episode. So if anybody was listening to this who knows about trains and train driving, you would probably be shouting at me. So AWS is the advanced warning system, which was operational and was available within the train. And then there's also ATP, which is the Advanced Train Protection. And that is the system that stops the train if the driver doesn't react to the signals. And that was what was um, not functioning and not working. And they weren't able to um, use the train as kind of as it should be. And basically, the incident wouldn't have occurred if ATP had been operational. And then the cause of the accident was basically. Great Western Train's failure to roster ATP or Advanced Train Protection competent drivers. So had that train been rostered to ATP competent drivers, the rule which prevented the ATP being switched on at Cardiff would have not have applied. So both services would have been fully ATP protected as they should have been. These drivers were not ATP competent drivers, And so without ATP, this AWS system became really critical. So basically, the ATP system is the one that would stop the train. The AWS is almost like the backup for that. And that kind of becomes really critical because the driver is supposed to keep a vigilant lookout at all times. And some drivers kind of saw this as just an aid, um, especially because that was quite a traditional thing. It was just an aid to help with driving. the report kind of acknowledged that actually a lot of drivers became dependent on the security of that AWS on the approach to every signal. So if AWS was turned off, they should have been paying much more attention. But perhaps Harrison was so used to having it, most of the way through his journey, he'd been paying attention. And then whatever he was reading on his paperwork, whatever he was doing, he was almost relying on that to have warned him about the signals. If he had been ATP trained and if the ATP system had been working and then it had also stopped the train, that would have just completely taken any of the element of risk away from this.
1: Yeah, because if he'd not heeded those warnings, the train itself would have come to a stop because it would know a red signal's approaching and the driver's not doing the right thing so the train's going to stop itself.
0: Yeah. So sorry for getting so confused with all that. The ATP would have stopped It's so confusing and it's all these acronyms. So I should really go back and say that this person on the end of the phone, fair enough that you wouldn't know for definite what, what something was being isolated. So the absence of AWS was this contributory factor to the failure of driver Harrison responding to signals SN280 or 270 at the crucial time and responsibility for non-functioning of this AWS on the service rested firmly with GWT. First, in having inadequate maintenance procedures, and secondly, through inadequate procedures for communicating and taking action following that isolation of the AWS. The report confirmed that obviously the immediate responsibility for the accident rested with Harrison for his unexplained inattention, particularly in the circumstances of operating a passenger train at high speed, knowing that neither of the available warning systems was operational. The report urged British Rail to make the system's operation mandatory, so no longer giving an alternative to pulling a locomotive from service um, if the system was found to be defective. So they couldn't just haven't, they just had to, they had to take that train off this off the rails and fix it rather than just kind of going along with a different setup obviously these were all recommendations from the report so the operational rules were changed but with one key difference so the operation of the ic125 remained legal with aws inoperable but only if a second fully capable and licensed driver was in the cab and speeds of no higher than 65 miles an hour to the nearest station were then the second driver could board the train. So they didn't want to fully take off these locomotives off the track if they were not operational but they were like okay we'll do something extra to ensure this doesn't happen. Evidence was given about the gathering and the release of information on casualties and the report suggested improvements around this as well. So those trying to ring various emergency numbers which had been announced found they didn't get a good response And in the case of relatives of the deceased, the uncertainty added greatly to their distress and families who had good grounds to fear that their loved ones would be among the deceased had to wait agonising hours whilst the process of official notification ran its slow course. And some information about some people who died became public, even appearing on teletext or CFAX. The emergency numbers were being swamped by calls about people who were not on the train. And of course, the report acknowledged no system works perfectly in any situation, but there needed to be improvements, so better provision was needed for answering the telephone calls, the Metropolitan Police Casualty Bureau closed too early, and the release of information by teletext had to be avoided going forward. The judge ruled that Great Western could not be successfully prosecuted because no individual representing the company could be identified as having committed a criminal act which led to the accident. It was a series of errors, but no one person had acted in a way that showed that they were guilty of reckless behaviour. Great Western Trains was fined £1.5 for negligent handling of a long-distance train operation, leaving both ATP and AWS disabled on a high-speed train. The sentencing remarks included, I accept that Great Western Trains does very much regret its responsibility for this disaster. The fine that I impose is not intended to, nor can it, reflect the value of the lives lost or the injuries sustained in the disaster. It is, however, intended to reflect public concern at the offence committed. After the ruling, Peter Kavanaugh's mum said... We've been through torture and I feel absolutely devastated by what's happened. The driver and Great Western have been let off, but nobody's going to let us off. And you'd think that this was bad enough, but two years later, Peter's mother turned on the news to see that there had been yet another accident on the same stretch of line as the subtle crash which killed her son. And in part two, we're going to hear about that crash.
1: Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now, each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favourite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.